Our astronauts in space need all kinds of help. They need to be healthy. They need to work experiments. We need people on the ground to interact with them to make a mission happen. Being part of real life space programs and really helping an astronaut get something accomplished like that was a real joy. Hi, I'm Jim Green, and this is a new season of Gravity Assist. We're going to explore the inside workings of NASA in making these fabulous missions happen. I'm here with Dr. Tara Rutley, and she is the Associate Chief Scientist for Microgravity Research at NASA headquarters in Washington, D.C. But prior to that, she was the Associate Program Scientist for the International Space Station, working at NASA's Johnson Space Center in Houston, Texas. Welcome, Tara, to Gravity Assist. Thanks for the invitation to be here. It's super cool <laughs> to finally be on this really great podcast. You know, I would say your background's really unique since you started out, as I understand, an engineer and then became a scientist. How did that happen? Well, I never wanted to be an engineer, quite honestly, but I have always wanted to work for NASA. And it was in particular in high school where I, I took a trip to the Johnson Space Center and it was a field trip and I got to meet an astronaut and he said, just do what you love because the chances are, it's really tough to get into the astronaut office and, um, and you don't wanna spend your entire life doing something you don't love. So do what you love. We wanna hire successful and happy people in the astronaut office. And that's what I did. I, I, that's why I pursued science. But uh, while I was working on my undergraduate degree in biology, I ended up having to work with a, a lot of mechanical engineering students because I had these great ideas for designs for exercise equipment for use in space. And I needed someone to help me implement them and, and come up with ideas and concepts. And so I got to know the mechanical engineering students at uh, Colorado State University where I was going to school. And not only did they help me implement my concept, I learned how to use the machine shop, how to help do design. I learned a lot about mechanical engineering and I got accepted to the uh, mechanical engineering master's degree at Colorado State University. And when I was just about to graduate out of that, um, that is when I applied to work for NASA, my dream job. And NASA said, well, we're in a hiring freeze. We, we, we can't hire right now, uh, but give us your resume anyway. So I gave them my resume and they called me a few days later. And as luck would have it, uh, they were creating a new division in the engineering directorate called Biomedical Systems Division. And they wanted me to come work on exercise equipment and medical hardware for the International Space Station. Uh, and I say it was luck, but what it really was, was being prepared for the big opportunity. So that opportunity came, I was, I was fully prepared and I ended up going to work as an engineer at NASA. <laughs> That's where I worked for the first eight years and it was everything I could have wished for. I could not have made that, that career up. That was the perfect fit for me. Well, you also got your PhD in neuroscience. Uh, so what does neuroscience have to do with space exploration? So while I was an engineer, I went ahead and, and pursued my PhD in neuroscience as well. And, you know, I thought about this question, Jim, a lot. Space exploration, neuroscience, they're both exploratory type sciences, right? You're, you're trying to solve a lot of the problems of the universe, the questions, the big questions of the universe, I think, with both of those. And I think I'm just naturally drawn to them. I mean, think about it. I think I've read that 
in terms of what we can see in the universe, we, we humans only see like 5% of, of what's really out there. And the brain is the same way. There's so much more out there about our own brain inside of our heads we don't even know. And so both of these could keep scientists busy forever and ever trying to, trying to solve all the, uh, the problems and answer all the questions. And so um, I, I really think, and I never meant to put those two things together. I just really think that, I think that's the type of curious thinker I am. And maybe uh, I'm trying to search for, you know, the philosophical answers to who we are, where we came from. Maybe that's, that, that's what drove me. <laughs> Absolutely. I understand completely. Well, you know, you started then at Johnson Space Center. And as I understand it, it was all about developing an exercise bike for space station users. Yeah. All right. For those astronauts. Uh, what's the bike all about and why was that important? So the bike is one of three what we call exercise countermeasures that we have on the International Space Station. So on station for the last 20 years, we've had anywhere from three to six people who stay on the station for up to six months. We've also had up to a year. And the reason we do this is to find scientific discoveries, right? First, we, we want our humans up there so that we can understand the changes in their bodies so that we can prepare them to stay longer and go beyond the Earth orbit to places like the moon and Mars. So we study their, their changes, the body changes in space. But we also do things like try to understand why plants are having a hard time growing or how fluid behaves or how we put out fires in space. So this big orbiting laboratory up there now needs people to run it. So those people need to stay healthy. So to do that, the bike is one of three. So we have the bike, we have a treadmill, and we have a resistive exercise device. The bike, the purpose of the bike is to maintain a heart healthy situation. We want to keep the heart, the cardiovascular system healthy for the astronauts uh, because the heart is a muscle. And if you don't use it, you lose it. And on Earth, we use it every day as we climb stairs and walk and run and, and move. But in space, you don't use your muscles so much. You don't move as much against gravity. So your heart could be at risk of getting smaller and what we call atrophy. So we have to keep that, that heart pumping like a muscle. The treadmill is also for cardiovascular and it's good for heel strike. So when your foot hits the ground, it actually imparts a force to the bones and the bones stay healthy that way too. And then the resistive exercise device is based on uh, the vacuum of space. That's the resistive component because you can imagine if there were regular weights, they would just float away. Now the bike was cool because yes, it was the first thing I worked on as an engineer. And it's just like the bike you would ride on earth, except for a few things. First of all, Think about when you're biking, you're, you're moving a lot, you're vibrating a lot, you're causing a force to hit the ground with your bike. So this exercise device, this bike, which is located in the US lab, is actually on these springs, so to speak, or these wires that, that cause, uh, that remove the vibrations from the bike to the station. Because if that, that bike was hard mounted to station, you were pedaling away, the whole station would start vibrating. And so it's, it's basically detached and kind of floating around as you bike, dampening the vibrations. Secondly, it doesn't have, the bike doesn't have a seat. You don't need a seat. And if you've ever ridden a bike for a long period of time, you're probably glad about that. <laughs> but it doesn't have a seat bottom because you're floating. You don't really have a place to need to put a seat bottom, but it does have a back. So you strap yourself down to the bike. You've got a back support and you're just pedaling away. You've got the, the shoes that'll clip in just like on earth. And then you just dial up the watts to uh, what your exercise prescription is for the day. Well, you know, Space Station is a wonderful place to do all kinds of research in an environment we call microgravity. 
what is microgravity? Yeah, microgravity is not that you're simply floating. It is that you're falling at the same rate of the Earth, right? So you're free fall. You're in free fall around the planet. It's it's a nice balance of of, the, of, of physics. And now you can study behaviors of systems in a way that you can't study on Earth because we are all we are everything you see, all the behaviors you see, the way that we are designed. We're all because of that huge gravity vector, the biggest force that we encounter. So when you take that away, things like sedimentation or, or particles settling to the to the bottom of a glass and in, in fluid, that goes away. You don't have sedimentation in microgravity. You don't have buoyancy or the mixing of things in microgravity. You don't have bubbles that are floating to the surface. Um, and you don't have um, very good heat transfer or convection either. Every science experiment you've ever done on Earth Think about how that might be if that gravity vector of that dominant force was removed, what might the outcome be? And so that's what's really cool about getting to be involved in the science on the space station. We have a lot of scientists who've been the first ones to see a whole lot of really new discoveries. And so uh, that's what makes it exciting working in this field, too, is nothing is what you would expect it at all, all the time. So what's your favorite story about working with uh, the astronauts on space station? So when I was a new engineer, I also worked some, on something called the temporary sleep station, which was TESS for short. And really, it was so early in the space station program that they didn't have any sleeping quarters. They would just kind of, uh, you know, not they would just, nothing private. So they would just kind of attach themselves to the wall like they did for shuttle. So we were busy working on a, a compartment that was the size of a, of a standard rack in space station that could actually give them a door and some privacy for a laptop and also provide a little bit of, of extra radiation while they sleep. Because while they sleep, they close their eyes, they could see bright sparks of white hit their eyelids while they're sleeping. It's just a little bit of radiation coming through. Um, so uh, it, what was really fun was helping to design certain components of that. I got a little bit in on the design, but but I was really fortunate to sit in on mission control when it was being installed. And so it was an overnight install. We were all tired. It was like the middle of the night, 2 a.m. It took several hours, but at the end of it all, and just sitting on console and being there real time as a young early engineer and getting all that feedback and that rush of being a part of real life space program and really helping an astronaut get something accomplished like that was a real joy. You know, since then, there are a lot of great science advancements and, and things that I've been involved in on Space Station. But for me, that one just sticks out the most. So how hard was it for these astronauts in zero G to fit these beds in the Space Station? It wasn't as easy as you would think because the temporary sleep station is like building a room. So Space Station has these big, long racks that are a little bit taller than humans. So the, the crew members had to first outfit the surrounding uh, the rack with uh, this cloth liner that we created. Then they had to stuff in some plastic blocks uh, to fit that we designed to hopefully fit just right to uh, to, to be that, that radiation protection. They had to install the doors and then they had to outfit it. It's not the same as just taking a sleeping bag and strapping it to the wall. This was you're building the room that you're going to sleep in. And so now once they did that, though, they had access to being able to watch movies in their own in their own little rooms, uh, change in their rooms, call down and talk to people at home or their have conversations with their flight surgeons in that room. And so psychologically and I would imagine physiologically, it was just it was just so needed that 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 sleep station on orbit. 
Cool, that sounds great. Well, back here on Earth, you also were involved in a NASA program called NEMO. Yeah. And so what is NEMO? So what this is, is it's, a, it's an underwater habitat called Aquarius, and it's located off the coast of Florida, about 65 feet deep, and it's actually run by NOAA, and it's used around year-round by marine biologists who want to stay in a, um, in a, in a environment under the ocean that they can just go out and, and scuba dive every day and study marine biology. And when you're 65 feet down, but you're breathing air pumped in from the surface, you become saturated, you, what we call saturated diving. So nitrogen starts to take over the place in your tissues where oxygen usually is. If you're a diver, you know that you can only dive so deep for so long before you have to stop and slowly decompress and slowly come to the surface um, over time so that you can get that nitrogen out and get the oxygen back in your tissues and you can avoid the bends. Um, so, but when you're going down into that habitat, you're down there for 65 days, they're there for a, up to weeks at a time, they're saturated. Um, and so, um, that's what we, so that's what we call an extreme environment. That's why NASA was interested in working with NOAA on using that environment for about two missions a year. So what, that, what we did was um, spend 10 days under the ocean in that habitat, doing lots of experiments uh, that, that I helped coordinate and design that we might on hardware that we might want to use uh, in, on the space station someday. So it was me and three other astronauts uh, and two techs uh, down there for 10 days uh, doing simulated spacewalks. But we were also doing coral reef measurements, contributing to marine biology solutions and testing hardware for what we might want to uh, use on the space station. We were also doing a lot of communication activities. Like we had to, we had to work together as a team to build an underwater structure that was that was sort of frustrating, but was meant for you to, to learn how to be a good team. And the reason NASA chose that place is because you can't easily just come to the surface if something happens. It's like going to the moon or Mars. You can't just come home right away if something, uh, an emergency happens. You can't just swim to the surface. You'll get the bends. So it's NASA's way of, of training the astronauts and testing out experiments and hardware in what we call an analog or a simulated environment that would be as extreme as you might see or close that you possibly could get on Earth to what you might see on a, on a lunar or Martian mission. Now, how big is the habitat that's sitting down at 65 feet? And how easy can you get around? And do you wear a scuba suit all the time or? Oh, okay, so the habitat itself, I forget the real dimensions of it, but it, it was about the size of, of a space station module. Um, so it wasn't that big. I mean, I think you, you, it had a bedroom and then it had a, a dining area which was also a lab. And then it had something called a wet porch. So when you're inside of it, no, you don't wear the scuba suit. And you get to look out the window and see all the fish and maybe fellow scuba divers going by, but you're inside nice and dry and warm. Uh, and at, at, in our bedrooms, there were bunks and you could see out at night, you could see the fish go by, which was really neat. Um, and so uh, we ate foods that you would eat in space. Maybe they were freeze dried or camping type of food. Um, and and there was a shower facility and a bathroom, and there was that wet porch. So the wet porch was the area that you would don on your um, scuba gear and go down into the water. So that wet porch type piece was kind of like an inverted bell where the, pre the air pressure was on the top and the water was on the bottom. So you literally put on your scuba gear, walk downstairs into the water and swam away. 
We did do scuba dives for up to eight hours a day. Even at that level, you could become, um, you could get something called nitrogen narcosis because uh, you still have a lot of nitrogen in your tissues. And we went a little deeper when we did our scuba dives and stayed longer. And so we were constantly monitoring each other for the sillies, for the sillies, because nitrogen narcosis can make people silly and confused and disoriented. So it was our job as buddies, very safety conscious to monitor each other the whole time we were uh, actually scuba diving. Once we got back into the environment, we were, we were much better. And I will say it was funny in the environment because you're at two and a half atmospheric pressure, our voices changed. Our vocal cords didn't vibrate the way they do uh, at one, at one atmosphere. So, I mean, I sounded the same, but the guys <laughs> sounded more like me <laughs> and, and I got to tease them a lot for that. And then our astronaut crew lead, our chief was um, John Harrington. John said that two and a half atmospheric pressure felt like it was pressing on his sinuses. We constantly felt like we had a little bit of a puffy head kind of sinus issue. He said that felt a lot like what it was like to be in space. Well, you know, I'm a diver too. I haven't yeah. dove in a few years, but um, I want to know after you got saturated, what did it take to come out? You know, you had to uh, go through a decompression stages. Yes. What was that like? So what they do is they close the doors to the habitat and ah. uh, and they have you for the first, I think the first eight to 12 hours, I can't quite remember, you lay flat on your bunk so that all of your joints are, are you know, laid out flat. There's no, no bubbles gathering in your joints and they start to slowly decrease the atmospheric pressure. So they start to start, start to simulate you slowly coming up to the surface. They take it in increments over a 24 hour period. So the, the first 12 hours, you're laying flat in your bunk. So it's overnight while you're sleeping or you're watching TV or something. And then the second 12 hours, you are, you're able to move around uh, as you're getting ready to uh, pack up and go. And then when they get to the surface, right, the surface, you're still 65 feet deep, but the pressure is that of the surface. They open the doors, you have your gear on, and then you can just swim right out to the top. So you've done that decompression already. Got it. Wow, that's neat. I never it's thought really of neat. that. I thought you'd have to get in your scuba gear and then you know hang on to a line at certain levels. But no, I'm glad you didn't have to do that. <laughs> it's really neat. And I will say anybody who came to visit us had to hurry up and leave. So if we had any any goods brought down to us or if we needed medical attention or someone wanted to come take a picture or something, they had to go down and it's 65 feet deep. So you can't stay, but maybe 10 15 minutes and then go back to the surface. So we had brief visitors, but not a whole lot. So Tara, relative to neuroscience activity, what's happening on space station in that area? There are a few different areas. Actually, there are many different areas of, of neuroscience activity happening on the station. Um, one is that we have found over the last several years that our astronauts are coming back with vision problems. Not all of them, a good number of them, enough for our human research program to be interested in why is this happening? Finally asking the question, why, why are some of our crew members having eyesight problems in space? And it may be that it, it's associated with the fluid shifts as we are in space, the fluid, a lot of the fluid shifts from our lower body up to our heads. And, and that fluid tends to put some pressure on the brain and as a result, the eyeballs. And we think this might be something to do with what's causing some of the, uh, the vision problems that our astronauts are experiencing. Again, it's not all of them, but it's enough to, to, for us to take a look. 
There are also other studies um, investigating crew uh, mental health and behavioral health. In fact, for a long time now, for the last 20 years or so on station, the crew has been keeping what's called a journal. And it's, it's, the, it's, a, research, it's a research experiment, it's an investigation of crew members writing in their journals about their feelings, about their experiences. Uh, there are certain questions they can answer. And those things are under constant evaluation for um, ensuring the crew is mentally healthy and um, behaviorally sound. Right now we're in low earth orbit where they stay maybe six months and occasionally we've had one year, but now they're going to get longer and further, further away from their planet. What does this mean for their behavioral health and their motivation and things like that? You know, Tara, I always like to ask my guests, what was that event or person, place or thing that got them so excited about being the scientist and engineer that they are today? I call that event a gravity assist. So Tara, what was your gravity assist? So when I was in high school, the movie Space Camp came out. That was probably 30 years ago now. And, you know, as silly as it was then, it, it, it made me dream and I thought, is there such a thing as space camp? So I would like, I literally called the operator zero. And I said, can you connect me with space camp? And she's like, yes, please hold. I'm like, what? There's a thing called space camp. And, and from there we did not have computers, so I couldn't go to the website. Right. So I got in touch with space camp and they sent me the flyers, the books for years. They sent me books every year about their new camp programs. And, and every year we started saving money um, to be able to send me. And when I finally went in high school, it, it's where I met my tribe, people like me who loved space as much as I did, because I didn't know anybody who knew, who loved space. I was really the outlier in my group, in my community. No one, no one was interested in that. So I met my tribe. I learned, um, all the different ways that I could get into the space program. For a week, I was immersed in pretending to be part of the space program. And, and I was the one who picked you know, the scientist position. I didn't want the pilot. I didn't want the commander. I wanted the scientist position, which was always easy. Everybody's like, fine, take it. Um, and so, and then, and then I understood what I needed to do in terms of my career as well. I'd always known I, I needed a PhD. I wanted a PhD, but attending space camp is honestly what g took my brain on a goal path, like from just from dreaming about it and thinking, yes, I want to, I want to work for NASA one day. I want to be an astronaut one day to getting there and getting the actual resources and getting immersed in that environment and to know that it's a real thing that I could actually achieve. So I would have to say that space camp is my gravity assist. <laughs> wow. That's fantastic. Well, you know, you're not the only one. I have heard this on several occasions. Oh, great. Uh, so, uh, so There's the a group movie of has sparked interest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Thanks so much for joining me and discussing your fascinating career working with astronauts and how you help them become healthier and enable the work that they do on Space Station. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. This is such a fun interview and I really appreciate being here. Thanks for the opportunity. Well, join me next time as we continue our journey to look under the hood at NASA and see how we do what we do. This is Jim Green and this is your Gravity Assist. <laughs>